Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. With us today is David Litt. David entered the White House in 2011. He left in 2016 as a special assistant to the president and senior presidential speechwriter. If you've done the math, this was President Obama, not President Trump. He uh, was described as the comic muse for the president. He began contributing jokes to President Obama's speeches in 2009 and was the lead writer on four White House correspondent dinners. He is uh, currently the head writer-producer for Funny or Die's office in Washington, D.C. He um, has written a fantastic book, a really fun book to read, Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years, A Speechwriter's Memoir. Uh, David, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So this is a podcast for leaders, and and uh, and I and there's a, a number of different levels I want to have this conversation in. You know, one is as a speechwriter, right? I think it's it's very you know most people I know in leadership roles they're constantly writing speeches and giving speeches, and I think there's um, there's some some interesting insights that you can give to that whole process and what your process is and you know how 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 you make things funny. Right. I mean, it's a it, you know, it's 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 kind of a the, the the having to predictably be funny, I think, is a real challenge. There's another level at which I want to talk, which is being a mid-level person in one of the most important offices in the country, probably the most important office in the country and and what that means. And and, um, the, you know, and also how you get your opinion hurt in in a situation like that when you're new. And uh, and then there's a third. It's like, you know. What is it like to write things that you may or may not disagree with? You're writing for someone else and for someone else's speaking. And and then there's more. There's so much I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about um, what it's like to be so committed to someone. Right? You, you write so eloquently about your, you know, I don't know that you would call it romantic love, but, but you know, your love of President Obama and your commitment to his ideals and 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 you know over years that you know the honeymoon period leaves and and yet you also maintain your commitment and i think it's that's a really powerful dynamic that a lot of leaders would want to learn more about right because it's you know it's impossible not to fall out of love and be a little disappointed but then also to stay committed and and be you know just as passionate so that's a lot. That's a big long introduction of all the things I want to talk about in the next twenty minutes. Yeah, let's let's get uh, let's get cracking on it then. All right. So look, first of all, Obama's an amazing speechwriter in his own right, right? So how do you summon the courage to sit down and write when you know you're writing not only for the most important speaker in the world, probably, but also one of the best? I imagine that's pretty intimidating. It was both intimidating, but also very welcome because. I know a lot of speechwriters in Washington who have the opposite problem. They write speeches that are really good, and the the boss makes them a little less good, and then they get delivered, and they're even less good than they were on paper. Um, and that's not true of everybody, but you know, I have friends who work in the House and the Senate, and these are are great public servants. They're just they don't happen to have that talent for writing or speaking that President Obama does. I mean, very few do. So. On one hand, it's exciting because you know that if you do good work, uh, 
you're going to show up well. Exactly. That, that there will be a difference, um, in the final product between your best work and your second best work. Um, because president Obama was not just a good speaker, but as you point out, he could recognize good writing when he saw it, or he knew good writing when he saw it. Um, it was also intimidating for the same reason that, you know, if it's a day when you say, oh, you know, I really want to phone it in, uh, that's a lot harder to do when the president knows, you know, th this is not really that great. And similarly, then the chief speechwriters. So I worked for John Favreau in the first term and Cody Keenan in the second term. And they had that same set of pressures where they were editing my work and they would know, all right, if I let this go to the president and it's not really that good, uh, it, it's, you're not going to slip one by him. And I think that was an important, um, you know, it, it, to some extent, knowing that the person at the top was going to hold you to that standard, it was exciting. It made you want to meet that standard, but it was also then that got reflected through the rest of the organization. Did you sometimes dial it in and then, and then cringe as it was kind of read and edited back to you? No, I, I definitely wrote speeches that were not great and uh, got rewritten completely. I talk about that a lot in my book. And I wanted to write a, a White House book that talks more about failures than successes, since I think, um, you know, particularly since I was young there, uh, I, I think that that's a, a little bit of an outlier in the White House book genre. But, um, you know, to me, most of the times I totally screwed up a speech. It's not so much because I wasn't trying hard. It's because often I started off and started in the wrong direction. And I never made that course correction early on where I said, oh, you know what, some, there, I'm missing something fundamental here. And looking back on it, those are usually the times I, I made a mistake. Um, one of the things that we teach in leadership and I talk about a lot in leadership is an unusual combination of characteristics that I think you actually have in spades and you demonstrate in the book. And, and that's this combination of confidence and humility. You know, the, the sort of humility to say, like, there's a lot I have to learn and, and, and the confidence that says, yeah, I'm 24 years old and I'm going into the White House and I'm, I'm writing, you know, President Obama's speeches. And, and you, you need both of those. And, you know, the self-deprecating humor in the book is, is part of that. That's part of the humility piece. But there's also a lot of confidence. And I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about that. I don't know if this is familiar to you or you recognize it in yourself. And if yeah. you do, how do you cultivate both of those simultaneously? Well, you know, when I left the White House, I, I did kind of a tour of the West Wing um, and met with as many people on the senior staff as I could and asked them questions like that. I mean, sort of life advice questions, because I figured, where else am I going to get the chance to talk to 20 of the most successful people on the planet about just how, how to live and work in the world? And one piece of advice I got, or one uh, thing that stuck with me, um, someone on the senior staff told me, you have to believe in yourself, uh, which looks like confidence sometimes, but is actually a different thing. And I think that's true. Like, I, I think, you know, anyone who reads the book, I think can tell that I believed in myself in some fundamental way. I thought, I didn't think, okay, I'm going to find out that I can't do the work. I, I had my doubts, but I wouldn't have been there if I thought, you know what, I don't belong here. Or I, I don't, I, if I work hard, I won't belong here. But I didn't always have confidence. And I think that's important. And I, I wrote the book, you know, for a lot of reasons. But one of the things that has been nice is people saying, oh, I feel like that in my job where, you know, I'm 24 or 34 or 54, but it never felt like I had permission to admit it, you know, to say, I think I can do the work, but it also doesn't mean that I'm always confident about my work. 
Well, what, think, take, tell me, tell me a little bit about the difference between you know having belief in yourself but not necessarily being confident. So, conf- to me, the the confidence is kind of that sense of every moment I'm doing exactly the right thing and I don't need to worry. And believing in yourself is thinking it will turn out okay eventually. Um, you know, it's also how I feel about uh, things in general, right? I'm, I'm kind of a long-term optimist, but I have no idea what's going to happen in the short term. And I think that's true as I was doing my own work as well, that I was fairly confident that things would turn out okay, but that didn't mean they didn't feel like they were falling apart. And, um, you know, it was, uh, to me in the book, important to describe both of those things, that most of the time they did turn out okay. Um, you know, uh, there was a time I almost set President Obama's hair on fire, but I didn't set his hair on fire. So that was a success. Um, but I do think that the uh, th- throughout, I wanted to um, talk about the, the other, by the way, to me, something that I feel like I learned from watching President Obama is that there's a form of believing yourself or, or confidence or whatever you want to call it that comes that, that is signaled by the ability to go back and say, hey, these are some mistakes and to think critically about your own role. Um, to me, a lot of the time, you know, there's that version of confidence that's, that's sort of like, I think I'm the best all the time. And I don't think that that often is really more insecurity than confidence. Right. Or, and actually, or, I, I think that's exactly right. And I, I actually, I think that's what distinguishes confidence from arrogance. So arrogance right. is, I think I'm better than everybody, or I think I'm amazing all the time. And I agree with you. It comes from insecurity and it's, it's, but that's not, and that's not confidence. Well, the, the way that I often think about it, too, is to me, these are issues of kind of do you think you're the best or do you think you're tied for first? And when I thought about speech writing in the Obama White House or in D.C., um, I definitely am not the best speech writer, you know, was not the best speech writer in town or even the best speech writer at my level in town. Um, but I think I was roughly tied for first that I, I felt like I can do this as well as anybody. And then the rest of it is largely luck and being in the right place at the right time. And I think it's important to recognize both of those things. And, and, and I think that was a sense of, uh, you know, believing in myself, but also a recognition that like, man, this is pretty crazy that I'm here. And, um, you know, that just because I think I can do this job doesn't mean this is normal and not totally surreal. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, briefly about your speech writing process. How do you get started? What do you do? Well, the speech writing process is really different for every White House, and it's different for every principal, because I started off writing for um, Valerie Jarrett, who was the senior advisor to the president, and Bill Daly, who was the chief of staff. Before that, I wrote for CEOs and other kind of uh, leaders in the private sector as well as the public sector. And everyone has their own process. For President Obama, we would usually get a topic about a a week in advance. Generally, it would be sort of, here's where he's going, here's what he's talking about. And then we would meet with policy teams, and the goal would be to figure out what is he announcing, what's different about this speech, um, and what, how does it fit into all the other things he said about this topic? Because by the time I got to the White House, you know, name a policy area, education, uh, infrastructure, whatever, President Obama had spoken about it multiple times. So it was, it was about taking this body of work that already existed and updating it for a new location, a new audience. Maybe there's a new inspiring story of someone we haven't told, um, but trying to figure it out that way. And we generally have a week and we would do this kind of combination of expert, uh, you know, like I would sit with experts and they try to get as much information as possible into my head and I would do my own research. 
And then we would send it to uh, the day before the speech. So I would send it to the um, chief speechwriter who would edit it. So to make sure that it was in the president's voice and that it kind of just looked the way it should. And then it would go to about 30 different people who would, there was a list of about a hundred, but most of those hundred understood that like, unless it was important, they shouldn't weigh in. So it ended up being about 30 people per speech who felt like if something came up that was in their issue area, they would jump in with thoughts. And that could be somebody in the communications department with a turn of phrase, but it could also be someone, you know, in education policy who says, that's not as important as you think it is, but this other issue, this other thing the president's announcing is, is the big deal. So talk about that. Which seems really smart because it's to avoid those, you know, you know, and you talk about this in the book, that as soon as President Obama, st- you know, stops speaking, there's going to be both bloggers and, and right. news agencies, et cetera, who are going to look for every hole they can poke uh, in order to, you know, kind of discredit or say you left out this part or why didn't you include God in, you know, in your Thanksgiving speech or and and those and I guess, you know, sending it out to 30 people helps to create, you know, it's almost like beta testing the speech and saying, you know, what what um, you know, what vulnerability exists in the speech that people might jump on. Right. I, I think that is important, too, because to some extent, as a speech writer, um, as a writer, your your job is to it can't be totally risk averse. Right. You're You're playing offense a little bit. Because the, the most risk-averse thing you could do is have the president not give a speech. So you're thinking about how do we achieve some, you know, what do we get out of this? But you also do want people thinking about, okay, what are the vulnerabilities here? And, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily get to do the fun part, but they get to say, here's where it could go wrong. And that's something I saw as a White House. I think we did more and more often on all sorts of decisions, not just speeches, as time went on. is sort of have someone play a dedicated you know, be the dedicated cynic, be the dedicated uh, political opponents, you know, somebody to say, all right, how could we, how could this backfire? How could we screw this up so that we have a sense of where the vulnerabilities are and we do what we can to correct them or or to defend against them. Um, David, you you talked about this early crush you had on Obama, right? How you heard him speak for 20 minutes and that completely converted you. And talk to us about what that was for people who are listening who again are senior level leaders in organizations and they're interested in being inspiring speakers. What made Obama such an amazing one? Well, I, I will say if you're a senior level leader at an organization and your goal is, you know, how do I have the effect on millions of people that Barack Obama did, it's going to be tough. Uh, but I do think that the most important thing that um, then candidate Obama did was he asked me and everybody else watching to be a part of this thing he was talking about. So some of it was what you would think of, that he was an inspiring, you know, spe- that he could speak uh, passionately and, and he would say things like he's, his arguments made sense, but they also had an emotional component, all the stuff that you would expect. Um, I will also point out, it wasn't just that he was a messenger, it was that his message and him and his, his, his persona fit perfectly together. So here was a candidate talking about hope and talking about change. And he was an African-American candidate who, when I saw him for the first time, had just won in Iowa, where the electorate was in over 90 percent white. And so he wasn't just talking about hope and change. He was hope and change. So I do think that's important. You need to figure out a way that you, as a messenger, personify the message you're expressing. But the most important thing, to go back to what I said earlier, is he looked at the crowd of people, and he was talking to the organizers, the field organizers in the crowd, and he said, you 
represent that most American of ideals, that faced with impossible odds, people who love this country can change it. But it was intentionally, I think, a broad way of speaking about it. He didn't just limit it to those organizers. He was saying, anyone who loves this country, they have a responsibility to go do something about that, to, to make it better. And I think that's why so many people like me immediately said, oh, I don't just enjoy listening to him speak. I'm not just excited about him. I'm going to actually go try to work for him. I'm going to do what I can to help him succeed because he asked. And I think that was a that's a pretty rare thing. You know, a lot of the times people don't ask. You know, it's interesting. It's it, we're doing some branding work right now. And one of the things that I'm learning about the branding work is most people, when they create a website, talk about themselves as the hero. Right. They say, <laughs> here's what I'm going to do for you. And here's what I gonna And and what successful marketing does is the customer is the hero and you're the guide. And what you're describing is actually very interesting because you're describing President Obama saying basically like, you know, looking at you and the other organizers out there and saying, you're the hero. You're the one who's going to make this change happen. Yeah. And but he might yeah, be sorry. the guide or the advisor, et cetera. Well, I will say, right. I do think that the watching, you know, being part of a big crowd of, of people when I was in college and I went to go watch Obama speak. And I was volunteering on the campaign a little bit. Um, the feeling you got, you walked away with was not Obama's great. It was that we're great um, and his ability to do that. I will also, I will also say, though, it came across in a way that wasn't um, that's the right word, trite or condescending, because if he had just said, you're all amazing and I'm looking forward to your vote in November, uh, that would have been different. But, you know, I think he talked about um, not just the sort of triumphs, but, you know, in that same thing I was talking about before, we talked about the organizers. He talked about how they were working for little pay and little sleep and how, you know, sometimes there's days that don't, you know, where you, you work really hard and you don't have a lot to show for it. So I think there were um, mo the way that he talked was honest enough that it wasn't just that it wasn't didn't feel like flattery. It felt like him recognizing the best possible version of you, which is a different um, a different skill. Right. You, you talked about. Um and it's a few times in the book about um, really wanting to help President Obama be just a tiny little bit better at his job. And, and you know, I, I spoke at the beginning of this podcast about this idea of being a kind of mid-level person and the kind of support that you can give in order to really be powerful in an organization. And I'm curious about that for you. Like, what did you learn about how to be useful to the President of the United States? Well, I think... One of the things I learned, and it might not be the most inspiring, is that uh, when you're in an environment like the White House, where the stakes are high and the pressure is always intense, uh, not screwing up is much harder than it looks. Um, so getting through a day without making a major mistake actually took a lot of work and, and I would say a lot of talent for, for myself and, and my colleagues. And I think that sometimes we don't celebrate um, – you know, we celebrate brilliance much more than we celebrate competence. Um, but sometimes, and particularly in some jobs, competence is really hard. And it takes the same set of skills that it would take to be brilliant in another job. Um, it's different, for example, than writing a book, where if you write a book that uh, is sort of, um, you know, kind of doesn't make anyone upset, that might be necessary, but it's not sufficient. Uh, if you, if I wrote a, a videotaping that didn't make anyone upset and you know, 500 people or 20,000 people saw it. Um, that's fine. I mean, it's not ideal, but th that's me doing my job that day. 
So some of it is just knowing what your job is in that way. And the other thing I think that I learned about that role is to have a clear sense. You need to set your own goals in an environment like that because in the White House, I generally learned there's not enough time for everyone to celebrate or say thank you for every single little thing. So you need to know here's how I'm here's how I'm deciding whether or not I did a good job today, and keep yourself honest. You, no one's going to do that for you. You tell some funny stories, and maybe you can share one of them as an example in this question. But you share some funny stories about how tongue-tied you were with President Obama and how intimidating it is. And and we've all experienced that. We've all been with people where we're we're kind of intimidated by them in one form or other for whatever reason, and our best selves seem to escape us in some ways, and we don't seem as you know believing in ourselves or as confident as we you know would otherwise be. So I'm curious both, you know, maybe to hear one of those stories, which could be fun, and then also how you found your footing, like what, you know, how that changed from from that lack of confidence to the belief in yourself. Well, so, uh, you know, I, I write about the very first time I met President Obama. I had written this video for the Thanksgiving Day video address. It was, you know, I, I point out that um, if the State of the Union is on one end of the presidential speechwriting spectrum, uh, happy Thanksgiving, America is all the way on the other. But I was extremely proud and, and excited about this video. And we were about to start taping when the videographer, a woman named Hope Hall, stopped us and said, uh, hang on, Mr. President, this is David. It's the first video he's ever written for you. And President Obama looked at me and he said, oh, how's it going, David? And I remember having exactly one thought in that moment, which was, I did not realize we were going to have to answer questions. And I have literally no idea what I said after that. I, like, I actually blacked out the first time I met the president. People would ask me, you know, have you met him yet? And I'd be like, yeah. And they'd be like, what did he say? And he was like, I was like how's it going? And they're like, what did you say? I was like, I don't know. I blacked out. And so I, I, and I think I later found that was not an uncommon experience. Like far more famous, important people than I uh, apparently also had that moment where they would meet the president and then have no idea what they had just said. But one of the things I noticed about President Obama is that there are also times in the book where I talk about him stopping us and specifically saying, guys, what's up? Like, what's wrong here? Um, and I think that was important, that he recognized that, obviously, he's an intimidating person just by virtue of who he is. And so he knew that it's not enough to just assume that people will feel comfortable or to create an atmosphere where people feel comfortable. Sometimes you have to directly give them permission. And sometimes you have to even go beyond that and say, no, I, you know, I'm demanding to know what's actually happening, wh whether or not there seems to be an issue. So he was and it was usually like if he noticed a look, you know, like a uh oh kind of look between me and some other staffer. Those are the moments when he'd be like, come on, guys, like what's happening here? And I think that was. Um, I wouldn't say that's how I found my footing, but I do think that changed that sense of permission. And I think some of it's just repetition that, um, you know, uh, the first year I was doing the sort of wrangling of the jokes for the correspondence center, um, I didn't feel like I had a lot of confidence about what I'm doing. Um, and then, but then after that, you know, the more I did it, gradually you, you it's, it's amazing how quickly something can become, if not routine, at least uh, somewhat somewhat normal. Right. 
Um, let's talk for a minute about humor and, and being funny. And, you know, you, you're, that's, that's your thing, right? You, you, you know, currently you're writing for a, uh, humor website and, you know, you're the funny speech writer. You talk about that in the book a bunch too. That's your job now. That also feels like a lot of pressure to come up with a joke, right? And how do you continue to deliver it? You know, humor on demand seems like it's a real creative challenge. Is it for you? Do you... You know, kind of what's your what's your process? How do you deal with that? So uh, humor on demand is definitely challenging. Um, I was lucky when I worked in the White House. So I was sort of responsible for making sure that things didn't go badly. And I wrote a lot of jokes myself. But we also had a big team of people pitching jokes as well. So, you know, every year my general sense was like, I hope that I'll have some jokes that are in the script. And usually I, I had quite a few. But it wasn't all up to you. Exactly. That that if for some reason I just it was the year I just was in a total slump and couldn't think of anything. I still think we would have had a good dinner. I mean, it's one of the or as as evidenced by like I left in 2000 early 2016. So I didn't do the dinner in 2016. Nobody watching on C-SPAN or in the room said, oh, man, you know, we really miss David. Um, And that's good. To me, that's an important thing that uh, the, the quality was the same. Um, when other organizations are trying to add humor, I think that there is, you need to have the time to write a lot of bad jokes. Um, there's generally, I think among people who are not funny professionally, a sense that, that funny people are just funny all the time. And the truth is they're funny more of the time, but that still means they're writing, you know, or or let me put it personally, if I'm sitting down and writing jokes, you know, it means I'm writing 10 bad jokes for every good one or 20 bad jokes or more for every good one. I think there's something real. I want to just underscore what you're saying here because I think it's really important because I think we live in these cultures of efficiency. And I, I feel this pressure when I write also, which says, okay, you got an hour. You got to write something. You, you write it. You don't want to waste any words. You don't want, to, you don't want anything to you know, stay on the cutting room floor and you want to just you – know, you have to be efficient and productive. And, and actually to be creative and to be productive requires in many ways that you be inefficient, right? And that you write 30 jokes, four right. of which are really good. Right. And I would even say it's, it's almost – you have to know what the goal is, right? If the goal is to just have something that exists, then I wouldn't take the time to do the 30 jokes and come up with four that are really great because it needs to exist. And, and when we were at the White House and you had an hour to turn something around – you did your best, but you recognize that that's all you can do. Um, if the goal is to do, let's say with humor, if the goal is to say, all right, we want something that is truly legitimately funny, like really great, then the only efficient way to do it is to take that amount of time. There, You know, you can't be productive and you're just creating something that is more, um, you know, it's, it's uh, right, like the difference between kind of mass producing something and, and creating something handcrafted and, and um, unique. And that just takes more time. Um, and I think the other, uh, one of the, the ways to shorten that length of time is to have people to run stuff by that, that collaborating or at least having someone to bounce ideas off of uh, means that you're not responsible for writing and then rewriting everything in your own head, which can take a lot of time. David, thank you. The, the, the book was great. This conversation is great. Um, we're, we're here. We've been speaking with David Litt, his new book, Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years, A Speechwriter's Memoir. It, it's both a great 
glimpse into some of the things that we're talking about around around kind of working in an executive office and and you know in the executive office and and you know the kind of contributions that you end up making and how and also it's this really endearing and interesting look as you said there's not a lot of you know 25 30 year olds who are writing memoirs about being in the white house so it's this very different perspective from a different lens and level about what it's like to work in the White House, and I learned a whole bunch of stuff from it. So thanks so much for writing it, and thanks so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you. This was really fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.